We will have a time now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 2? Our passage today is just two verses, verse 8 and 9, but just for context's sake, we're going to read 1 through 9. When you found that, would you stand together with me and we'll read this passage So a bit of review from last week. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed in the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature objects of wrath. But... But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now here's where we're going to camp out today. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more quickly and ask just God's blessing on this time and his word, and then we'll dive into this amazing text. Spirit of God... We trust you have been present with us, and we're asking you to continue to be present with us now. Accomplish what you want to accomplish through your word. We believe that each person here today, you have drawn for a purpose, and you want to speak something specific, to convict, to encourage, to bless, whatever it is through your word, God. Whatever that purpose is, would you accomplish it here today in this gathering as we meet and now as we come to your word. Speak powerfully through it, God. Open up uh, hearts and ears and eyes to see and to understand and to know and God bring about transformation I pray that we be changed and come out of here different than when we came in this morning and as I always ask now eternal God would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth amen well of course we almost never realize it in the moment as it's happening but now I realize looking back that some of the most important lessons in my life I learned as a child growing up, I learned from my father. Now, just to set the record straight, I'm going to pause right there and say, that doesn't mean I didn't learn lessons from my mother as well. I know my mom watches these sermon videos sometimes. Mom, I know you taught me things too. But some of the most important lessons in the moment, I couldn't see it, but now I realize I was learning really important life lessons from my father. And one of those lessons that I learned from him came one particularly hot morning in Kamloops, where I grew up, as I, uh, we could say, drew the short straw, as it were, and had to cut the grass, front and back lawn. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a big deal here in Vancouver. Most of our lots are above 2,800 square feet, so if you even have a lawn, it's not that big, but... We were living uh, here in Canada, so our house was like a quarter acre, so that's like almost 10,000 square feet, so it's, the, it's more, it's a bigger job. So it was more work to do. And the deal was, I could go out and hang out with my friends that day as soon as 
the task was done. As soon as the chores are over, you can go hang out with your friends. Great. The problem was, it's Saturday morning, right? I, I like to take it easy. I like to sleep in. I'm sure I was still watching cartoons at the time. So I just took my time, and I didn't actually get out until about after 11. But now in Kamloops, the weather, it's, it's hot there. This is semi-desert, so the temperature was already like low 80s, high 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That's this time of year what it was like. And so it's, it's not comfortable to be out there in that heat. So all of a sudden, I was like, I waited too long. Out I go. And here's the thing. I, I wanted to get it done quickly as possible. Just like get it over with, quickly move through it. And so I just did the job, hurried back inside, start getting changed so I can head out to my friends, only to be intercepted by my father, who, who invited me to come out into the backyard with him. Uh, I was in a hurry, so I just kind of angrily shot back, Hey, Dad, I, I've done the job. I did what you asked me. Only to have him show me all kinds of missing lines on the lawn that I hadn't cut, grass clippings I hadn't raked, and have him respond to me, No, you haven't. Get the lawnmower out and do the job properly. And, man, I was like, the injustice of this, I was like railing and complaining against this, only to have my dad, in true like Jack Pearson style, stops, pulls me aside, and he's like, listen, any job that's worth doing is worth doing right the first time or not doing at all. And just instilling in me in that moment, and then again and again, lots of other opportunities, but instilling in me a work ethic, which I've carried through to this day, really, where, where I, I seek to give myself to a task in such a way that when it's completed, I can look back on it and be proud of what I've accomplished. That's just something he's worked into me over the years of my life, and I look back now and see it. And my guess is, knowing many of you fairly well, that's something that you learned as well. That's something you grew up with. It's a value that you have that many of us hold today. And one of the reasons that most of us would, would shudder, would, would, would scoff at, or even maybe just bristle at even the idea of something like a participation trophy. Don't get me started on this because I could preach all afternoon on this. We would even bristle at the idea of such a thing. Why? Well, because we were all raised with the idea. We were taught, like, like for generations before, the value of hard work. That the praiseworthiness of working hard for something, that, that what you get out of something is determined by what you put into it. And that you never get something for nothing. And I mention all that as we continue this morning in our teaching series through the book of Ephesians because although all scripture is God-breathed and useful, as we come to these two iconic verses of scripture in particular that really I would say match like John 3.16, match like Romans 1.16 as far as like theological significance as well as like popularity on Bible memory lists, we can completely miss the beauty and the like high significance of what's being communicated to us here if we take what is largely a true statement about getting something for nothing and seek to apply it to Paul's teaching of salvation by grace through faith. Why? Well, because it's basically true in every other aspect of life when it comes to our salvation, getting something for nothing, in fact, getting the best something of all for nothing, 
That's exactly how it works. Kids, you can confound your parents later on when they try to tell you. You don't get something for nothing. You can say, what about our salvation? (laughs) Try it out. It's true. Maybe don't try it out. That's exactly how it works. You do get something for nothing, which is an equation before our our hearts have been awakened and been made alive that Paul speaks about there in verse 5 that either either doesn't compute to us, makes us suspicious, we're like, what do you mean? Or has implications that make us uncomfortable and so we don't want it to compute. We don't like this idea of getting something for nothing. And we'll get more into that as, as to why that is as we dig in this morning. But in order to help us understand and rest in the incomparable riches of these two verses, all that they want to reveal to us, I want to look at our passage today in just two ways. I want to show you, first of all, the offense of salvation by grace through faith. And then we'll look at the defense of salvation by grace through faith. The offense and the defense of salvation by grace through faith. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them up again? I want you to follow along with me as we look at these two verses and seek to to fathom with Paul, really, the way it is that our greatest possession that we have came about as a result of none of our efforts. Okay, so let's look, first of all, at the offense of salvation by grace through faith. The offense of it. And I realize full well that just... Given the context of here where we're talking about this, that could be confusing. That could sound strange to a lot of our ears to even hear something like that because we think, well, what could possibly be offensive about getting something for free? What's, what could be offensive about receiving forgiveness for all our sins and eternal life at no cost to ourselves? Who's offended by that? Well, let's just read these verses again and consider them, first of all, negatively. And I think in doing that, you're going to have a better understanding of how somebody could be offensive. This could be offensive to someone. Look look at what Paul says, beginning at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. And I think the first doorway into our understanding of how a message like this could be seen as offensive to someone is simply to remember that lesson that my dad taught me there out on the grass and and that I mentioned as we began that we were brought up with as well, namely that idea of you don't get something for nothing. that's, That's in our minds, just think of that, we don't get something for nothing. And then remember that that understanding is something that everyone is bringing to this message of the gospel. When they hear this message of the gospel, they're bringing this understanding. You don't get something for nothing, which can immediately make the gospel sound a lot more like a a timeshare presentation at a hotel where you get a free iPad just for showing up, more than like a a message of redemption for all. We just kind of be like, "Eh, I don't know. Every time I hear about those things, I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to be pressured. I don't really want to be part of that. It can make the gospel feel like that because we've got this understanding. You don't get something for nothing. I love the way my friend and brother down in Atlanta, Pastor Leonce Crump, said at one time, we were talking about the way, what it means to present the gospel message to someone. And he said here, he said, the average person sees the offer of a free salvation by grace like you've got one hand behind your back. I think he's right. Why? Well, because you don't get something for nothing. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be something else that you're not 
telling me about. It's just ingrained in us, which means it doesn't matter how beautiful, it doesn't matter how shiny the package of salvation might look, the offer of grace to unawakened ears is still always going to sound like there's a hidden catch that you're just not telling them about. And according to pastor and author Tim Keller, what most people believe that catch is, is religion. It's religion, which means the average person, what they hear when you tell them, come to Jesus, come to church with me, I want you to consider the claims of Christianity, what Keller says is what they hear instead is you asking them to take on a set of religious practices or or moral restrictions so that God will accept you. That's what they hear. Which altogether, I trust you can already be beginning to see, is exactly why the offer of a free salvation by grace can be seen as offensive and not attractive at all to people. They think you're either trying to trick them into religion, or the salvation being offered is just actually not that valuable. But I think another doorway into understanding how a message like this could be offensive is also when we consider why it is that Paul seems to be so concerned. He goes to such great lengths just in these two verses to, to take away any idea of effort or earning on, on our part from our salvation. Why is he making such a big deal of that? And we know that's what he's doing because of the way he begins verse 8. Look there with me. He says, For... For it is by grace you've been saved, which tells us Paul's continuing on with whatever he was just talking about. And what he was just been talking about, which we looked at last week in the preceding seven verses, is this contrasting B.C. A.D. picture of salvation. And if you weren't with us last week, just a quick review. What we saw in verse 1 in particular was Paul's grave diagnosis. That in our B.C., in our before Christ state, spiritually speaking, we weren't dying but dead. We weren't drowning but drowned at the bottom of the water. And therefore, what he was saying is that what made the difference in us being made alive, being saved, was not our reaching out, was not our initiative towards God, but entirely in his initiative towards us in sending Jesus. But again... After painting such a clear picture of our helpless estate. And then there, look at verse 5. He already says, it's by grace you've been saved. Why is he going to just repeat the same thing again in verse 8? For by grace you have been saved. Why would he say it again? And then why add these other pieces? Saying, oh, and it's not of yourselves, not a result of works. Why is he making such a big deal of this? And I think the answer we find to that question is listed right at the end of verse 9 there when he says, so that no one can boast. That's why. So that no one can boast. And this is the second reason I think someone could take offense to a free offer of salvation by grace because in the end, what could be more offensive than to tell someone who believes they've earned something or at very least contributed significantly to it that their efforts Their earning had no bearing whatsoever. You don't hear a lot of valedictorian speeches, kids being like, yeah, actually my parents and professors had nothing to do with me being here today. It was all me. You don't don't hear that a lot because that's offensive. You'd be like, of course they did. So how offensive to be told you actually didn't contribute at all to this. It was all done for you because what does that do it pushes on that whole idea of you don't get something for nothing from the exact opposite side if i believe i have worked for it 
If I believe I have offered praiseworthy effort and then be told all the praise belongs to someone else? It's easy to see how that could be offensive. One of the clearest places you see this idea in the teaching of Jesus is in his well-known parable of the two sons, often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son in Luke 15. For although much of the narrative centers around the younger rebellious son, the context of when and where Jesus is giving this teaching, that is, in response to religious rulers, they're boasting and they're feeling superior in themselves, reveals that what the story is actually about primarily is the angry, boastful response of the older son to the father's gracious reception of the prodigal when he comes home. For when the older son refuses to come into the welcome home party and the father has to go out and bring him in, just listen to the offense in his reply. He says to his father, look, I dare you to begin any conversation with your father by saying, look, wouldn't go well for me. All these years, he says, I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I kept the rules, Dad. I followed all this time, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What is it that stirs such hatred from the older brother? What stirs such offense from him? It's grace. Grace is what stirs offense in him because reward is given to someone who'd done nothing to earn it and the older brother is indignant. Why? Well, because he believes he did earn it. I have earned my father's acceptance by my works and my obedience to all the rules. In his work on this passage, Martin Lloyd-Jones notes, it is always in connection with works that we are most liable to boast. And so a free offer of salvation by grace, as I trust we've seen, is as incomprehensible as it is offensive to unawakened ears. Not only because you don't get something for nothing, but because to one degree or another, most people believe that they have done something to earn God's acceptance. Even if that's just simply not being as bad as somebody else they know. I don't know if you've ever... When I've presented this message of a free salvation, an offer of free salvation by grace alone to someone, I hear this all the time from people. They say like, oh yeah, that, that sounds great, nice. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that need that, but I'm not a bad person. I mean, I'm no Hitler, I'm no Stalin, like, I'm not like that. Like, I'm a good person. I've done good things. I, I, I've treated people well. I've given to charity. I'm pretty sure if there is a God, He accepts me. And we need to know that that's a perspective many people are holding when we're sharing the gospel with them so we can help them begin to understand that acceptance with God has a very different standard than the one we think of, namely perfection. God's standard is not, can you be better than this other guy? His standard is perfection. Which, come on, that's, that's also absolutely offensive to people to be told, oh, you've got to be perfect for God to accept you. But it's also, think about it, it's what makes the gracious offer of Jesus' perfect obedience credited to our account so attractive. Because the offer is you don't actually have to earn the perfect acceptance. Jesus already did it for you. He's, he has earned God's acceptance for you. You only need to receive it. 
And if you know Paul's story as a former Pharisee, he understood firsthand the boastful, offended response of that older brother in Jesus' parable to the, of the Father's offer of grace. He knew that more than anyone. For more than just trying to be like better than the guy beside him, Paul had, had worked tirelessly with religious fervor all his life to be sure that he had earned acceptance with God. And therefore, he was deeply offended by Jesus' offer of this just like friend of sinners welcoming in these people who hadn't earned God's grace. It was deeply offended by that. And he says as much in what he writes in Philippians chapter 3. It says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew uh, of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But all that changed, didn't it? It changed in a moment. When Paul met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and his heart was awakened from death to life, which is why Paul immediately follows up that, that kind of competition-crushing spiritual resume by saying, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that is come, which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. But what I trust is already plain to you as we look through this. I mean, we're this far into Ephesians already. What I hope you can already see and agree with me is that Paul is not writing to unawakened, yet to receive this grace people. Who's he writing to? He's writing to a church. He is writing to the church at Ephesus, those who would say they already have received Paul's grave diagnosis and received new life graciously offered to them in Jesus. That's who he's writing this message to. Which means the reason Paul is going to all this trouble to emphasize salvation is by grace through faith is not only to help convince those outside the church that acceptance with God isn't something that they can earn or work for. It's because in his experience, even those who have been saved by grace through faith are still in danger of this. We're still in danger of falling back into this pattern of seeking to earn an acceptance with God that we already have. In fact, if you know some of Paul's other writings, you know, for instance, the book of Galatians. I mean, it's dedicated almost entirely to warning the church against this idea. Don't return to slavery of trying to earn your acceptance with God. You have it. And what I'm saying is, why this matters to us, because if this was possible for the church to fall back into this pattern of a works-based salvation here back then, then it's absolutely possible for us to fall into it again today as well. We're just as much in danger of this ourselves. And there's all kinds of ways that this can show up, all kinds of ways that you can see this demonstrating itself. But as it relates to the offense of salvation by grace through faith, one of the ways you can most easily tell that you're beginning to fall into this trap yourself is very simply, whenever you begin to feel superior to others, when you begin to be superior to look down on others either outside the church or even inside the church because of your moral, religious performance. When you begin to feel like 
I'm sure God is actually pretty pleased with me this week. Done my quiet time every day. Encouraged my kids. Came to church on Sunday, put something in. God is God's pretty pleased with me this week. Or you begin to imagine yourself with Jesus standing there folding your arms, looking at someone who confesses that they're still continuing to deal with some kind of sin struggle, and you're just like, Jesus, get a load of this guy. I can't even move past this. That's how you can begin to tell that this idea of earning your acceptance with God by your own obedience is beginning to slip in to your own way of understanding. Having lived so long under the boastful illusion of believing that he'd earned some kind of special favor with God because of his devout religious obedience to himself, only to discover after years of striving he was no more worthy of God's acceptance than the sinners he looked down on. Paul is is anxious to warn his readers then, as well as you and I today, of the fruitless, lifeless pursuit of seeking to earn the salvation that can only be received as a free gift of grace. He's saying, don't do it. Don't spend another moment trying to live that way. It doesn't accomplish anything more. Our acceptance is by grace through faith alone. It can't be earned. Because the reality is it can feel offensive. It can feel offensive to hear that God is just as pleased with the guy who accepted Jesus 30 seconds ago as someone who's followed him faithfully for 30 years. His acceptance with God is is no greater or less than yours. It can feel offensive to, to, to hear that all the good and righteous behavior that you're striving to follow God obediently doesn't make you any more acceptable than someone who doesn't do half of that stuff. You haven't earned a higher spot with God. It can feel offensive to us to hear that. But man, it is an offense that is so necessary. We need to be offended in this way. And we need to be offended this way often because, as has been said by many, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It is entirely level. There's no no higher places or positions or ranks that you move up to in the family of God. As we sing in the well-known hymn, it is grace that brought me safe this far and grace will lead me home. The entry point point is grace and it stays grace. That's why Paul is so, is pushing this point again and again. We've been saved by grace through faith. It's not a result of ourselves, not a result of works. But listen, it isn't at all to say that God is indifferent to our obedience, That's not what I'm saying. He is. He he cares very much about our obedience. But the point he's trying to emphasize here is we are not saved by any act of obedience except the perfect obedience of Jesus on our behalf. That's the only work that actually accomplishes our salvation. Okay, so that's the offense of salvation by grace through faith. Undoubtedly a humbling Revelation, when read negatively, but I trust you'd also agree, is a no less necessary revelation, whatever offense it may cause. But we're going to flip it around now. When flipped around and read positively, here now is where I believe the, the power and beauty of this simple statement of the gospel is truly found. For positively read, this becomes now a, a profound defense 
of profound defense, either for the one weary of trying to earn acceptance from God or the one so aware of their unworthiness they fear that they could never have it. This becomes a profound defense when read positively. So let's look lastly at the defense of salvation by grace through faith. The defense of salvation by grace through faith. Now defense is a word that's used in all kinds of different places and contexts. So you might hear about it in in a military setting, defending against attacks. We hear about it in sports, defending against an opposing team, or even in legal settings, defending against an accusation. But in every case of the word, whichever you're most familiar with, what's common among them all is that they all include uh, this aspect of guarding and protecting someone or something. It's, it's defense. It's defending it. Defending my goal. Defending my country. Whatever it is. But I wonder how many of you have ever thought of the gospel message that way. As something that's a defense. As something that, that guards or protects you. What I want you to see here as we look now at salvation by grace through faith positively is that in the same way the offense of the gospel applied broadly to both the one who has been saved by grace and the one who has yet to be saved, what we're going to see here is that the defense also applies to both of those groups as well. And although all three influences, those influences we looked at last week that seek to keep us in a state of spiritual death, namely the world, the devil, and our flesh, that, that's what the defense of this gospel message is seeking to defend us against. I think it's those last two in particular. Our accuser, the devil, and our own selves, our own inner voice that we're most in need of defending from because they're the voices that speak the loudest and usually the most convincingly. So let's just read this again, just these two verses, positively, and then we're just going to talk for a minute about how this defense works. Again, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Now, very quick review. Grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It is getting something you don't deserve. Faith. What is faith? But confident trust or reliance upon something that results in action. Okay, it's not just enough to say I have faith, faith that actually steps off the edge and trusts. Some of you maybe have heard it stated before then, grace is the material cause of our salvation. That's the thing that actually saves us, and faith is the instrumental cause. It's the means by which we take hold of that grace. And what we've been saved from, according to verse 4, is the just wrath of God against sin. And I know if you've been in church for a while, you, you've studied this passage. I know there's like a great debate, particularly around Paul's usage in verse 8 there when he says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Which leads a lot of people to, to argue that our faith, it is something that we contribute, however small, to our salvation. It says grace through faith. They're both needed, so maybe our faith is actually something we contribute to the salvation, but the fact remains, think about it, if our faith is something that initiates God's gracious response to us, and not the other way around, with His gracious revealing of Himself being the thing that ignites faith in us, then that immediately causes our faith to become a work. Our faith has now become the thing that initiates God's saving work. And Paul just went on in verse 9 to say, that's not the thing that saves us. Our works have nothing to do with His salvation. 
So that's why I, th- I understand it to be our faith is the means by which we take hold of the thing that saves us, but not the thing that saves us. But just consider now the defense this gospel message offers when read positively as opposed to negatively. It's an incredible defense for all of us. First of all, for the one who has not yet been saved by grace through faith, although, yes, the offense still remains, when read positively, what the gospel defends somebody in this place against, first of all, is the belief that acceptance with God is just too hard. How could I ever live up to this perfect standard? Let's not bother trying. First of all, it speaks to that. It defends against that fear. But it also defends against this idea that they're too sinful and unworthy for God to want to save them. Because verse 4 and 5 just made it clear. God's love for us preceded any response to Him. He saved us while we were still walking away from Him, dead in our transgressions and sins. He saved us even then. Which means altogether salvation by grace through faith, what it does for this person is it removes some of the strongest logical barriers anyways as to their idea of receiving and causes just forcing the one who's yet to be saved by this grace to have to grapple with what's truly behind their refusal of a salvation that comes as absolutely no cost whatsoever to them. They have to really wrestle with the idea of, okay, why am I really refusing this? Again, it doesn't, it doesn't do everything, but at least defends against those ideas of it's too hard or I'm just too unworthy for God to even want to save me. They have to consider, why would I say no to a free offer of grace? But for the one who has been saved by grace through faith, the way the gospel defends you is against either the tendency of all of our hearts, again, to return to God's acceptance, trying to earn it by our own obedience, or against the lie inside all of our heads when we fail to obey God that His acceptance is something we've lost. Reminding us in both of those cases, your efforts have never had a bearing on God's acceptance of you. It was never about your earning. Just stop and consider your own walk with God right now and how this applies to you, where you need this defense of the gospel message today. Consider how regularly you and I need to be reminded of it in light of all the ways that you and I continue to struggle and fail and fall on a daily basis, either through feeling superior or through failing. We need this defense daily. And it's one of the reasons why I believe these two verses have been committed to memory by Christians for centuries, actually. And they're verses that I would commend to you to have memorized as well, to make this one of the ones that you constantly have right ready in your pocket because there's such a powerful, ready-made defense whenever the devil or our failures seek to darken the eyes of our heart that Paul just prayed here that the Spirit would enlighten. Enabling you to speak out loud against every attack, every accusation, every time you're in that moment where you're looking down on someone because of how they're not obeying as well as you, to remember, wait a minute, that's by grace I've been saved. I didn't earn my way in here. How can I look down on them? Every time you, you fail, then you feel like it's too much. God can't accept me. Now, wait a minute. It's by grace I've been saved. I didn't earn my way in the first time. He still accepts me. Now, we, we need this defense of the gospel again and again. We need it all the time because we're constantly falling into one of those two categories. 
that we can say in any of these cases, it is by grace I have been saved alone through faith. Tim Keller, he tells a story of a woman who came up to him after a service once when he'd preached a message very much like this of a salvation by grace alone and, and also offended. She told him, I don't like this whole concept of salvation by grace. It doesn't sound good to me at all. He pressed her a little bit just to kind of tell me why. Why, would you, why do you feel that way? And she replied, I want to be able to contribute to my salvation in some way, however small that contribution might be, because then at least I have something to bargain with. If salvation is truly by grace alone and I don't contribute anything to it, then that means there is nothing God cannot ask of me. She's right. We have nothing to boast in. And we have nothing to withhold either. Which I think is, is a response. That's a response of many of our hearts, actually. We don't really like the idea. It's one of the most prevalent reasons that I think keeps us offended by the gospel and refusing the defense of it. Particularly living in this time in history when, when personal autonomy Self-sufficiency are the prevailing gods of this age. Namely, because accomplishing everything necessary for our salvation by His grace, leaving nothing for us to accomplish whatsoever, it goes against everything we've been taught, everything we believed all of our lives about working hard for something. And it can, for lack of a better term, make salvation feel like a participation trophy. You didn't really do anything, and yet you win. It can make our salvation feel like that, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet. When our eyes and our ears are open to truly accept and receive the grave diagnosis of verses 1 through 3, namely that apart from the grace of God, dead in our transgressions and sins as we were, we had no possible hope of contributing anything to our salvation, that, that we needed Him to accomplish everything, else none of our salvation could have been accomplished, well, then we are at last enabled to surrender, to lay down our efforts, to lay down any desire to boast in ourselves and begin to boast in Him alone. That's what enables us to do that. As God speaks uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, when it comes to boasting, it says, Thus says the Lord, let not the rich man, isn't it? The wise man boasts of his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's what we should boast in. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and mercy in all the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. If there's anything we can boast in, it's that alone. That we understand and know him, which is a revelation that's been given to us. Boasting in him, knowing that the same grace that awakens faith in you also reminds us that the free offer of salvation by grace through faith was not free to God. It wasn't free to him. It cost him everything. It cost him the death of his son. A debt Jesus willingly paid for our salvation, not because he desired to die, but because there was no other work that could accomplish it. As the words of the hymn we sang this morning so powerfully remind us, not the labor of my hands 
could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no rest by no, my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. My prayer today for each one of us, wherever this finds you, is that in response to the incomparable riches of God's grace in saving you, we might at last lay down every effort, lay down every offense, and rest at last in the defense of his grace to us in Jesus. He would rest in his completed work on our behalf. There's nothing more for you to accomplish. And rest in the knowledge of the Father's ever-welcoming embrace of every prodigal who returns home. An embrace that is always freely available to us by grace, through faith. Amen? Amen.